Hey, Culture Hackers, welcome back to another episode. I'm excited to be here with John Windsor, a fellow thought leader, as it were, in the... <laughs> whatever, whatever that is. <laughs> yes, whatever that was. Sometimes I use it on stage and say, yeah, I'm a thought leader because... And I go through the story at Zappos and say, I thought I was a leader. Right, right, <laughs> and all it. the lessons I learned that you can't learn in the books that you learn directly from managing people. Um, yeah. But speaking of learning, you run a lab at Harvard. Can you tell everybody about that? Yeah, it's called the Laboratory for Innovation Sciences at Harvard, and it's actually a lab that sits between the business school, the medical school, and the computer science department. And so we're trying to figure out. I mean, essentially, the founding story of the lab is that that NASA got a budget cut for the health and human services in 2007, a, a massive budget cut of 80%. And obviously when you're running that, you're Jeff Davis and you say, wow, my job is to keep astronauts alive in space for 20 cents on the dollar. What the heck do I do? <laughs> right. And so, and so it's just one of those, you know, serendipitous things that Kareem Lakani at Harvard had done a couple speeches on the idea of using crowdsourcing as a way to get extreme values from, you know, from talent and from, from ideas. And so Jeff connected with him and, and that the, we started working with NASA and then that we built the center of excellence for collaborative innovation at NASA. So the lab is actually, you know, pretty much it has been traditionally funded from NASA, but it's expanded a lot now just focusing on open talent and, and AI and the growth of AI. What's the most surprising discovery you've made through the lab? Through the lab? Oh, well, I mean, I think the, you know, for the relevant, you know, just just really quantifying things that we thought we knew. And so the big discovery, we, we kind of did, a, you know, a pretty deep, deep dive set of research on 500 projects that NASA had done using open talent. What we found was that the results were as good or better, that it was four to five times faster and eight to 10 times cheaper to use out, outside talent. And that's so NASA. So the crowdsourcing of outside talent, essentially scientists, yeah, found yeah, that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about it, right? You're like one of the biggest things that Jeff attacked to begin with was, well, you know, you're an astronaut, you're in space. There's a there's a sunspot. Sunspots create enough ra radiation that they it will kill you. So you're hoping that there's some guys back at NASA trying to figure out some kind of predictive model to say, hey, Robert, there's going to be a sunspot in an hour and a half or in two hours. Might, might want to get inside the, you know, the shielded <laughs> place, right, inside, inside the space station. And so NASA worked on that for 10 years with eight of the top heliophysicists, a budget of $2 million a year. So $20 million in two years. And they created an algorithm with an hour and a half prediction time with 50% accuracy. And that was something that was really concerning to Jeff when he got his budget cut. He was like, we got to increase this because Robert will not be able to get back into the chamber. Yeah. In an hour and a half, he's working way out, you know, on, on farther, <laughs> farthest parts of the space station. So they gave it to a platform, they gave it to us and we gave it to a platform called Incentive. And in 25 days, a guy, he was actually a retired cell phone engineer from New Hampshire, came up with an algorithm that was able to predict sunspots eight and a half hours in advance, 80% accuracy and all for $25,000. So here you've got the best eight heliophysicists in the world spending 10 years and $20 million and getting an algorithm that is one and a half hours and 50% accurate. And then a singular guy in his basement <laughs> for 25 days, creating an algorithm that's four times better. Wow. And, so uh, fascinating. So you've got a pretty provocative statement you said that you, because I like to just get into some of the meat of this. So yeah, man, let's you, do it. you said, no matter who you are, 
you can't hire the best talent. That's a bold it, statement. It's the true statement. How is that? How is that true? Because I think you know, you you, you some somebody who's a small business owner might say, okay, I, I I guess I can't. But you're saying no matter who you are, you're saying yeah, if no you're matter Google, you if you're IDO, what yeah. what what is that all about? Yeah, because the best talent, you know, right now, I mean, if just, let's take the let's take the tech talent space, right? Right now, there's 60 million tech jobs that are open with nobody to fill them, and that's going to move to 150 million by 2025. So if you're worldwide, a top, worldwide, right? So if you're a top tech talent, an a, you know AI specialist, a data scientist, UX expert, you can make so much more money freelancing or working three or four between three or four clients that it's not even worth. You know, you can't hire them. You can't like just just for instance, my brother runs a, a you know a PE backed media company and he's looking for data scientists. And he said he started by talking to data scientists at $150 a year. He said six months later that those same data scientists were 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 saying that their minimum was half a million dollars a year. This is kind of in the middle of COVID when COVID started happening, saying, yeah, I'll, I'll come, you know, I'll come to Boulder, his, his company's in Boulder. I'll come to Boulder for a half a million dollars. But other than that, you can hire me for a few hours here and there on a project basis. I'm just not going to do it. I think you see that over and over again, whether you're a designer. I mean, you know, Apple loses Johnny Ives, right? You know, the people just are doing other things now. And even if you have the best talent, our re recommendation is, is that you better be letting them work on other projects besides your own. Are they're going to be gone? Yeah. So one of the things that I I've learned and shared, I, I learned it from a, a Navy SEAL who has this distinction that he told me of. I'm not sure if you've heard of it of hunters and farmers. Mm -hmm. So th for the audience, in case you don't know, it's this idea that he he said, you know, we Navy SEALs are hunters. What does that mean? It means we see something, we want to go get it. We take something from A to Z, we complete it. Um, salespeople are hunters. They they are on the hunt. They want to complete something. That person who has got a lot of drive, um, that's a hunter. And so there's a lot of the glorification of the hunters. But what's for interesting sure. that he said is that we we in the in the 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 group are a hundred SEALs in that group. But we're 100 hunters supported by 400 farmers. And right. he said the farmers are people who keep processes going. And farmers don't want to take something uh, like a huge project. They want to keep systems going. They don't need huge rewards like a salesperson. They want stability. Right. Um, and you know, to apply this to corporate, the way it goes wrong is when you take a hunter and try to make them into a farmer. You say, uh, John, you're the best database developer. Let's have you manage 10. And now suddenly you're a farmer. You don't want to be. Or what I've seen companies do is they try to make farmers into hunters. They say, yeah. okay, John, you're working customer service. We want to hear you innovate more. Why can't you change the process? And you're like, I just want to deliver great service. That's all I'm here for. And mm -hmm. that's where it goes off the rails. So with this, with this statement about um, can't hire the best talent, would you say that more applies to this? hunter type than it does to getting the farmer type at a company? I mean, I think it did. I think pre-COVID it did. But I think that the reality Even is just, yeah, the reality is there's just too many, you know, I mean, you could see it, right? The great, great resignation. There's too many choices for people. I mean, talent, you know, the, 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 the war on talent is over and talent won. And it's just the fact. I mean, one of the great examples, there are two great examples I use in the book. One is uh, Claire, a woman in, in Portland, you know, she worked for uh, she worked for a accounting firm. She was a bookkeeper. Beginning of COVID, she got laid off. You know, she's making thirty two thousand dollars a year, single mom, two mom, two kids. She then got COVID. She then went in, went on to you know assistance, really really hurting. And so she didn't have an alternative. She went on to Upwork, and she put herself out there as a corporate book bookkeeper. And in two months, she's working for thirty companies, 
at 800 bucks, a, a, you know, 800 bucks a, a month. And all of a sudden she's making what? $25,000 a month where before she was making 30, $32,000 a year. So she's making $300,000 a year doing exactly the same job that she did before. And the reason is, is because the, the accounting firm she worked for had all these other costs. You can imagine probably, and I'm saying this in, you know, half jokingly that the, that the owner of the accounting firm that maybe let's just say it was 50 people probably drove a fancy Lexus or a Tesla or something like that, because he was ex extracting the profit off of her work. But all that, all that accounting agency was, was a matching agent. If you're a company in Portland, right, you're saying, right. I need a good, you know, I need a good accountant. You use that company. Now they're digital matching agents. I and mean, one of the things, one of our, you know, big partners in our work is Deloitte. And they're the first ones to say is you, you know, you're a, a CEO of a fortune 500 company and you need a UX strategy or an AI strategy. You hire us. We're totally blunt. You're going to pay five times our employee salary. That's just the holding cost of the Deloitte brand and our yeah. research and all that stuff. You can go to big business talent group and hire that exact same person for a quarter of the cost. And that person's making one and a half times what they made at Deloitte. So talent wins, right? Talent wins with new matching agents. So in, in, in that case, um, in, in some ways you're taking on more risk, right? Because if you're hiring Deloitte, it's kind of like that old adage. They say nobody got fired for hiring IBM, exactly, right? Like exactly. Deloitte's going to make sure you're you're happy for five times that price. So the risk factor must be lower for for that kind of payment then. Yeah, it used to be. But I, I think what we're seeing and really great from the platforms like Upwork, Upwork guarantees the work. And so if you're not hap happy, then, you know. Really? Bond, yeah. So, you know, hey, Rob, you're not happy with that accounting person? Absolutely. Don't pay. We'll find you the next one, you know. And, and and the great thing is, right, there's this level of transparency. It's like reputation rankings. You can call their references. It's all available on the platform. You know, I, I worked for an ad agency for a long time. You know, uh, Crispin Porter Boguska became the global creative agency of the decade. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of the things that was scary to me going in there as a very senior level is I discovered that I was booked out 400% of my time across what? a bunch of clients. Oh, yeah, that's just a typical way big consulting and big agencies work. So it's a bait and switch, right? It's like, hey, Rob, you're on the Microsoft business a hundred percent of the time. Oh my gosh. But, but you know, all the while you're running Burger King and you're running, you know, Domino's and you're running all these other accounts. And so it's a, it, it, it in inherently creates this bait and switch because that's the only way that, that, you know, consulting agencies or service providers make money. They say, Oh, we're going to put Rob on this business at 800 bucks an hour. Mm. And we're going to actually have somebody work on that for 200 bucks an hour. And we'll get Rob off to the next one because Rob's the guy that attracts all the business. Wow. So do you see a larger trend of changing the relationship to time itself then through these trends? Yeah, I mean, I totally do. I think that's the big key, right? One of the scenarios we lay out in the book is this idea of let's just say you're coming in as a Fortune 500 CEO. And you determine that that your company really needs an AI strategy. It's going to be blown out of the water by some kind of machine learning that, that you could be really, you know, under threat of. And so you go, you know, traditionally you would go to your head of HR and you say, I need an AI expert as an SVP or, you know, that level, right? Yeah. Well, you know, to find somebody like that is almost impossible. So you spend six months to, you know, eight months to hire that person. And she comes in and she says, I need a team. And then you got six months to find her team. And then all of a sudden you got the team and then they say, well, we need another three or four months to do the strategy. 
And you, that's the 18 months later, you have an AI strategy. Now, to me, the more modern way to do that is for you as a CEO to say, not we need the talent, but we need the, we need the, you know, the outcome. We yeah. need an AI strategy, right? Mm -hmm. And so how I would attack that in the, in the context of open talent and the future of work would be to say, you would say as a CEO, I need a strategy. You would go to a couple of platforms and say, who are the 10 best AI experts in the world that have experience in my field, right? Let's get them in a room for two days. Let's create a, a, a plan to define what are the hundred tasks we need to do to create the best plan in the world, the best strategic plan in the world. And then let's take 50 of those people that can do those hundred tasks and give them two weeks to do it. And in a month, you've got the best strategy in the world that you can say, okay, I've worked with a hundred people on this strategy here, are five that are really awesome that I'd like to engage with in a deeper way. Mm -hmm. And you're off and running in, in a month versus 18 months later. Wow. That's, that's awesome. So, you know, part of the desire to ha have that hire is, especially pre-COVID, right. is you can watch them in a way. Like you see them working, For you sure. uh, you get meetings, call them into meetings, et cetera. Um, there's, there's, there's proof of it, essentially. And now going to more virtual culture, you, you, you don't see them. You don't know what they're doing. And I think with, with um, you know, if, if there's just an absolute clear deliverable by clear time, you can say, look, I don't care if you spend five minutes on this. If you get me exactly what I need sure. in the amount of time, that's great. But not every position or project's like that. So mm -hmm. how how do you see culture changing in this in this remote freelance space where you, you don't just have them right there and you don't just call them into a meeting and you don't just like, how do you see the culture shifting around it? I mean, first of all, I think that's an assumption that culture was ever established by place-based, you know, things, right? And I, I just never believed that. I never have believed that. And I just, you <laughs> you know, don't think the culture of a family would be different if they're all living in the house versus if you got your family all virtual? Well, for sure. But my experience in work is just is counter to that in a company, right? So one of the things I did is I sat on the board of directors of of Black Diamond Equipment. Now, Black Diamond Equipment came out of, of Patagonia because at one time it was called Chenard Equipment. It was actually the biggest part of Patagonia. And, and you know, there were some lawsuits. And so Yvonne Chenard decided to dump to, to dump uh, Black Diamond. So Peter Medcalf became the CEO. Now, you know, yeah, I think you define, it, it depends on how you define culture. Like the, the corporate culture, a segment of it was that it was a bitch in place to work and a lot of cool stuff that happened. But I would say that BED was so successful, you know, over 12 years, we, we then took the company public, grew from $2 million to $120 million. And the reason was because culture was, we defined it was the culture of a global climbers, right? So one of the things that I loved about what we did when we began is we had 25 or 30 engineers and then engineers were employees and they would hack away at, you know, creating carabiners and creating, you know, mm -hmm. cams and all the climbing equipment. And literally on Friday nights, everybody would meet in the parking lot. Any climber from anywhere in the world could come and the, and the engineers would throw everything on the ground and say, go break this shit this weekend. And everybody would go break it all weekend long. And Sunday night, there would be a big gathering, you know, some food. And everybody would say, this thing sucks or these are really <laughs> awesome. And engineers would go back to work, right? And, and it had nothing to do with, it had everything to do with just the fact that there was this fluid knowledge across the globe of information. And I think you've seen that more and more. And one of the things that was really profound, because I was trying to wrestle with this, like, how do you go from a static culture to a dynamic culture, right? And and to me, that's the big shift that that's, that companies need to, to go through. And Paul Livko, who's the, the C, uh, C, CTO and CXO of Wellmark, the big uh, insurance company, he said, you know, I thought it was so great. He said that, you know, anybody that 
thinks that they control a singular culture in a company is naive if they've got more than one office. Because if you've got more than one office, you've got several <laughs> cultures, right? He's like, we've got like 15 offices and the Des Moines culture is a lot different than our Chicago culture. It's just the way it is. And I think yeah. that's, you know, the overall culture is super important. But I've been thinking about this, you know, because after you and I had those conversations uh, in Detroit, I think that that whether it's virtual or it's it's, you know, physical, that the best cultures are created by iconic leaders and those and those leaders I mean, Tony Shea is a great example right mm -hmm. the way he lived his life the way he was curious the way he focused on happiness it emanated everywhere now that curiosity that perspective I don't care if it's Tony or if it's Yvonne Chouinard or if it's Peter Medcalf whoever that is it causes everybody else to be curious and say mm -hmm. wow I want to be happy too yeah like what, what kind of mechanisms can I create to help Tony get to his vision, right? Yeah. And to me, that's what creates culture, right? It's a really curious, really progressive CEO that says, these are my personal priorities. This is what I'm going to focus on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and hey, come along for a ride. If you don't want to come, <sighs> I, I love that. You know, I loved your Zappos story of like, you know, giving people bonuses right away if they didn't want to continue in the company, right? Right. And that's that's one of the mythologies. And that's the way it should be, right? It's a it's a it's a it's an opt-in situation, like any culture is, right? Come join us if you want to, but if you don't want to, totally fine. Yeah. Speaking of Patagonia, one of the things I heard that they a practice that they did was having the doors automatically lock at 8 p.m. because they want to enforce work-life balance and said, hey, you better get out of here for 8 p.m. or you are literally sleeping here. Um, <laughs> have you heard of any kind of interesting practices that are a little bit off the wall like that in, in your experiences? I mean, you know, I mean, I think one of the things I loved about Patagonia early, early on was just that idea that, you know, I mean, all of us, when I, I ran a company called Sports and Fitness Publishing and, and you know, and connected with Patagonia because I was a, you know, pretty well-known outdoor athlete. And, you know, it was all of us. We we're just starting to have kids, right? And we were like, wow, this whole life, you know, this work-life balance. And, you know, I think Patagonia was one of the very first places to put a nursery in their in their building. And, you know, and then all of a sudden a preschool and all those kinds of things. And I think that's an, a, a really, really important thing. I mean, it's, you know, if the leader has this work-life balance and wants the community to do that and they're, they're progressive about it, there's lots of things to do, right? It, it's, it's, it's to me, it's, it's living your authentic self as mm -hmm. a leader and then and allowing those things to happen and allowing the flexibility for other people to do the same. You know, there, there were lots of things <laughs> that, that I <laughs> shouldn't talk about that we had as culture builders back when I had sports and fitness publishing in the eighties, that would be illegal now to do. Right? Really? Like, like what? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we would give up, like, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be open about it. It's kind of a wacky thing. You can't even almost like comprehend it, but you know, when we started sports and fitness publishing, all of us were athletes to start with, right? That that was kind of the thing. So the first thing I did was that to, to work for the company, you had to go do this uh, 10 pitch rock climb with me. And if you if you did the rock climb, awesome, you're part of the company. If you if you couldn't complete the rock climb, sorry, you couldn't you couldn't join the company. That was like the the, the first thing. So there were all these kind of gates that we created, right? Because we were like, hey, you know, we need to not. I had just actually bought women's sports and fitness. And one of the things that made women's sports and fitness work, I bought it out of bankruptcy and it was owned by time Inc. And so one of the reasons I felt like it didn't work is they had 40 editors in New York, right. And staff writers. And so their, their attitude would be, let's just say, Robert, you're a world-class surfer. And so women's sports and fitness 
editor or writer would call you and say, Robert, tell me about being a surfer. And it would be somebody that had no clue what surfing would be. They're trying to interpret that, right? My attitude was let's fire all those people. Let's hire a few editors and let's have the Roberts of the world write the article about what it is to be a surfer and we'll mm. edit their material. Let's let the readers actually do the writing and create the culture because the culture's out there. It's not yeah. in, in New York on, on Fifth Avenue trying to examine what the culture is and predict what that is. It'd yeah. be sort of like trying to run a fashion magazine from Boulder, Colorado. Like you, <laughs> it, you couldn't do it, right? Yeah, it's interesting about talking about the things you can't do anymore. I wrote a blog post recently about, I, I was inspired by the founder of, of Pictionary. And what he said was one of the things that really got them together as a team was they, uh, they had to print out all these cards at first and to get it on deadline, they couldn't get them collated and they had to literally like stay up all night together and do it themselves. Wow. And it was one of the most bonding things they did. And there's something to this idea of, of group suffering. The Navy yeah, SEALs yeah. do it. You know, we did it at Zappos yeah. where you had to be there for the training every day at 4 a.m. and pass the test and take all these 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 interesting tests through the process. And, you know, I've 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 thought about what can be done. I, I was advising a team and I said, you know, I I think I believe it was either Live Journal or WordPress in the early days, they would get everybody together in a big house for a week. And and I, I pr proposed this to a team and, and one of the people said, no, 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 I need my own space, right, I need exactly. my own room. That's your problem. And it, right. <laughs> and then I've been thinking about, okay, what are other ways to do it? Where especially where ones you won't die. Right. Um, what I came up with was was cold plunges or one, they're definitely suffering, yeah. but you won't die. Um, improv. Yeah. is is something together like some it's it's like group public speaking you feel like you're gonna die but i guarantee you won't die so i look for things like this like how can you have a group experience that's really really connected even suffering together because that's that's just some of the most bonding you can do yeah i mean i think there's also other things you can implement that creates a level of transparency and equality right like you know nobody rides first class simple rule, right? Like everybody stays, you know, if you're on a corporate trip, everybody shares rooms, right? This is like, if you're a startup, you share rooms. It's hard Sorry, to do dude. that these days. I know start, it is. Well, I that know. makes me wonder, a question for you on this. Do you think there's a, a markedly distinct difference in culture between, because a startup is essentially, especially when they've got that deadline on them, you have to be high performance for sure. at, at all costs, right? Versus you join a, 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 a company and then you can say, hey, I'm not sharing a room with somebody. And well, they, I know. They say, okay, we don't want you to go to HR about this, right? Yeah. Um, and I think about the early days of, of Apple when they were inventing the Mac and they had shirts that said 90 hour weeks and they were just yeah. so pumped about that, right? Exactly. So is there, do you see a market difference in the, in those high performance types of cultures than the standard corporate culture? Yeah, for sure. Cause you know, everything is like, you know, either you do or die, you got to go in every day and make a difference or you're and, and you can't have the time to not have a performer on the team. So you, people are just exited really, really quickly. Um, and, and, you know, people are always chomping at the bit to come be a part of it, not because of the equity, because it, they will make a difference. They, if they believe in the cause, it's like, I am here. It's a, it's a jihad, right? This is like, I'm going to do something important. I mean, one of the big things that happened to me that I was just found so fascinating, because I think we're all susceptible to that, that big, you know, corporate, I would even call it greed, right? This is like, it's, it's insane. And so one of the things that, you know, so I sold my company, Victors and Spoils, which is a startup and, and it was a, you know, an ad agency based on crowdsourcing principles. And, it, and it, it got a lot of press and it blew up. And so Havas bought it in 18 months. So really quick run. And, and I became chief innovation 
uh, officer at Havas and it's out of Paris and, you know, things move a little slower in Paris and French companies. And so the first call I had was, was with the head of HR and she said, well, we're trying to, you know, establish your budget and, and for travel and, you know, and likewise, you know, you know how it is when you're an entrepreneur is like, I paid myself 125, maybe 150 when I could, right? That was my, as an owner, right? And if a startup, you're kind of like paying when you can. Well, my my salary to start with was 650. And then on top of that, she said, well, you know, what do you think about $450,000 as your travel budget for the year? And what? I, yeah, I just been like, sure, if that's what you want. <laughs> but, but, you know, what happened was it created incredibly bad behavior on my part. Because mm. I I was living on the beach. I had you know I I have a house in Mexico, and in a small surfing village. And we built a school there. And my kids were going to school to the school we built. And so I would literally be such a jerk about it. I would actually fly once every week and a half for a day and a half to Paris from from the beach in Mexico. So I would actually surf in the morning, fly to Mexico City, catch the night class you know flight first class Air France into Paris, land at two in the afternoon, go for a run, you know, have meetings and dinner. And then, you know, at noon the next day, I'd be back out to go surfing in Mexico. That's what, you know, like, Hey, if you want me to show up in Paris twice a month, I'm happy to do it, but I'm showing up for a day and a half. Like, that's it. Yeah. And that's day and a half from, from Mexico, not day and a half in Paris. Right. Right. So, and you know, it was like, that's the kind of behavior it creates. So when, when yeah. the global CEO of Havas says, we got to get together in Barcelona next week. You, everybody just gets on the plane and flies to Barcelona. I mean, retrospectively, I had one year there that I spent a hundred days. At, and I hate to say this, but a hundred days at the Trump Soho in New York, a hundred mm-hmm. nights at the Trump Soho in New York in a room that was twice the size of my house in Mexico. <laughs> but you know, what do you say? Like, how, how could, you know, like the meeting, the meetings are, you know, everybody's going to dinner and then they're having, you know, drinks at, in the, in the bar down in the bottom of the hotel. Cause everybody stays there. And, you know, it wasn't like I was choosing that room. It was like, Hey, Havas corporate travel guy. Right. Right. You no, know, what's my going to be in my room. We got you on the 26th floor. You know, it was just, it was scary because my house in Mexico is like got a big, bigger board bodega than it has, you know, a living space. And I always get cut, getting kind of anxious being in this huge right. room by myself. Anyway, it's a yeah. change. But then, you know, you spend a year doing that and you're like, well, I, of course I need this. This I, I put from <laughs> a want to a need, right? And where does that, where does that work for us psychologically, right? Right. That is I fascinating. I don't, I don't, I just don't get it. I mean, one of my favorite like cultural moments for myself is I remember doing the speech in, in Vail and, and so I was in Mexico and I drove to the airport in my totally shitty Ford Explorer that had 260,000 miles on it. Literally rust. You could see the road from it, you know, just wax that had been baked on the dashboard. I pull up in my flip flops, drop the car for, you know, what, a dollar a day in the Mexico airport. No problem. Windows open. I'll be back in a few days. I get to Boulder where I'm from and I had like a four year old. You know, a, uh, what was it? It was a, uh, it was a Audi S4 Avant. You know, the station wagon, super souped up. Yeah. And that night, I got a brand new the the new magazine that showed the new RS4. Right. <laughs> and so I was like drooling that night, 
And then, and then that next morning I was driving hundred miles an hour up to Vail and I was sitting there going, man, my ass is kind of squishy. I think I would need to spend $75,000 on their RS4. And I was like, what the fuck? Like yesterday, 12 hours ago, I was super happy with my thousand dollar Ford Explorer. Like what the fuck happened? It's just like my whole mind just blew up, right? You're just like, oh why God, do I need an RS6 so just to carry my ass to Vail like for an hour, right? It's like, <laughs> right? Oh it's so gosh. stupid. Anyway. That's so funny. So you were, you were talking about um, bringing back to a, a group or a startup coming together for a cause, a purpose, mm-hmm. and that being a rallying cry. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on, this could be just me getting older, but I think about how much that that's important to me but the day in and day out of my time is really spent with whoever i'm working with you know and at, at zappos insights people are coming all around the world to visit us and 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 i believe we made a really big impact but what i loved was my team we we yeah. were constantly laughing having a great time so how much do you think that draw is oh this is the project i want to work on or this is the impact i want to make on the world versus these are the people i get to work with day in and day out and have a great time with these amazing people and these amazing minds i think that's super important right i think that i mean you know i have this amazing global diaspora of folks that I just really love doing things with that, you know, and I, I see no line between, in fact, my wife and I always argue about this, you know, I see no line between work and, and life, right? That's just like, I live my life one way and I work exactly the same way. It, I, maybe I'm not smart enough, but it's just super simple to do that. And, and I think that, you know, to me, automatic probably has the best figured out, right? They, mm-hmm. they, you know, the guys who do WordPress, they, yeah. they, you know, they, it's all remote, but they get together once a quarter for a week and then if you've got a bunch of folks, say in San Diego or in Boulder that you want to meet, they'll pay for, you know, work share space so you guys can work together. Um, they're very flexible, but they're, but the mandate is like, Hey, we're remote first. And that's what we do. And that's what we've always done and go be wherever you want to be. I think the conflict becomes the cultural conflict becomes when leaders are a certain age, our age, or I'm a little older than you and have this kind of, you know, used to being around and, you know, management by eyesight. And, and younger folks are like, hey, I, I don't need to be inspected on. Like, I, I'm going to do my work and get it done and from wherever I am. That's a huge yeah. cultural tension, right? I mean, I'm 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 in the last couple of days, just because my house is, uh, we're, we've got it up for sale. So I've got my little home office um, fixed up in a different way. But I'm back in the Victors and Spoils office where I started Victors and Spoils. And my buddy who was the venture capitalist behind Victors and Spoils now is another company in here. 200 employees really, really well financed. And I've been here for a week and a half and zero people from the company come in. There's an, there's seats for 150 people here. And the poor guy can't get people to come to work. Hmm. Like he and his C- CFO are here every day, super pissed that nobody will show up. <laughs> nobody. And and the problem now is it's too late, right? Not, problem now because of COVID is everybody moved away. Yeah. Yeah. What what do you see as uh, I I remember this was, I don't know, early 2000s or something. And and I overheard this great conversation about how if an executive leaves their position and has to go on their own, they realize all of a sudden, like they don't even know how to use Outlook or do email. And they had assistance for this and that. Right. So that was back in the day. What would you say an an executive, if they were to leave now, in what way would they be out of touch with what's with what's going on? I mean, I think a lot of the same things you just talked about, for sure. 
but it's also that that security of like I come into a desk and I've got my stuff and I've got an office. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, when you think back on it, it's like, isn't it crazy? The hierarchy that space created, like, let's have the fishbowl in the middle and then mm -hmm. let's, let's cruise around. Executives are all going to have the offices on the outside with the corner office being the boss. It's like, mm -hmm. what a dick move. Like, wh where is that? Like supporting the work of the people. Like, <laughs> Hey, you know, uh, my secretary will call you to my office and you will <laughs> bow before my eminence and we will talk about work. It's like, I just don't get that. Yeah. So, you know, the other thing that I think COVID really did, you know, as a side note is that, Somehow, I think we conflated our our most important relationships as work relationships. And I just don't fundamentally get that. I mean, in, in the work environment, there's always somebody who's a judge and a judgee, right? There's somebody that's a boss and an employee. And so to have that compliant relationship, somebody's always judging your performance mm -hmm. and then trying to have a relationship with a mm -hmm. bunch of people that you're competing against. I mean, there's no way that any human being can kind of be the good guy on the team without secretly trying to take out half the team to get ahead. Mm. Like that's just the way it works. And I think one of the beauties about COVID was that people stayed at home and like, Oh, I didn't know Jody who lived next door for the last 20 years. She's really interesting. She's really into crochet. I didn't like crochet, but now I sit in a chair with her and with her cats and do crochet with her. And so there are those, those kinds of relationships that I think humans are more geared towards those less judgmental, those less compliant relationships that are really important for us as human beings that we don't get at work. Yeah. So I sometimes use this metaphor of how everything's changing. I love metaphors because they explain things really quickly is that we've gone from the theatrical to the cinematic. So theatrical, we're, we're in person, right? You're in an in-person meeting. That is like theater. It's you're, right. you're seeing it, everything is 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 slower it's in person there's more senses i heard on a a podcast i think it was one of the a16z guys who said you know it used to be that you would to meet the boss you would go meet this first uh security people and at, at the ground floor and then go to the second floor and meet a secretary and then you go to this big office and and it's it's intimidating right and now all of a sudden you're both just squares on a screen right and what i say about this is that We've gone from the theatrical to the cinematic in that we are in this TV show, you and I together. Mm -hmm. And my thought on it is that you can't simply change the same way a, a, an actor who's uh, been doing theater their whole lives can't just suddenly do a movie without right. learning the differences of how a movie works. And you're, okay, we're going to sure. do multiple takes and you're not going to have an audience and you've got to do all these different things. Yes, it's still acting. So my thought on this is, yes, we're still working. But we have to somehow take into account that this is a different medium. And my 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 thesis on this is that because it's cinematic, what, is, what does cinematic mean? It means faster. You have to be faster, more entertaining, more engaging, quicker. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you see that metaphor applying. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, that I love about, you know, your thinking and, and the opportunity for you is that nobody knows what culture is in this new virtual world, right? Like, what the hell? How do I build culture? Like, can't do it on a zoom screen. What does that mean? And, and so, you know, just blue ocean out there for all that stuff. I totally agree. And I think that's a great metaphor. I think about it, you know, it, it and especially it's generational, right? I think that, you know, millennials have such an easier time because they, they just have lived digitally. And so they, they, you know, <laughs> when my daughter says a 16 year old daughter's like, Oh, I spent all day, you know, I spent all day with my friends. I mean, I, my mind goes like, oh, were you at the park or were you shopping? He's like, no, on TikTok or no, on Snapchat. And you're like, 
but you were in your bedroom the whole time. It's oh like, yeah, but gosh. I was with my friends, right? And so we just don't think about it that way. I, you know, one of the things that's a huge pet peeve of mine, and I had, I totally get that it's my deal and that it's my generation, but I don't know if this bugs you, but you know, somebody really wants to meet with you, right? And they say, hey, pick a date from, pick a time and day for my calendar leave. And I'm like, dude, wait a second. You want a meeting with me and you want me to, to put the effort into going out to your calendar and taking the time to pick a, a date on your, on your calendar. Like if you want a date with me, let, let me, let me have my assistant, you know, call you and tell you here are the three times that are available. Now I know that's totally inefficient, total <laughs> bullshit, but there's this hierarchy, right? That that's like total bullshit in my mind. I mean, it, you know, it's important for me. But for the rest of the world, it's like, why would I care? It's way more efficient just to go to Calendly and pick a date and be it over with. And so it's we get stuck in these ways that we've that we've lived our lives, right? That we've been trained. Yeah, yeah, that's the yeah. Thing. It's going to this virtual culture. It's it's so interesting because to me, it's 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 almost literally disembodying. Oh, and for I think sure that. You know, we we think of ourselves as just brains, but we've got these whole bodies. There's even more science saying the brains in the gut and all these things like that. And so For that's sure. my big concern is that that kid in their room is is literally getting disembodied and that that can't be healthy long term. It's totally unhealthy. I totally agree. I, I don't think we figured that out at all. I mean, the rise of mental illness. I don't know if you've watched Social Dilemma. But- oh, my God. That changed my life. I, I know, I, right? I'm now, for the most part, off social media. And when, like, before it came out, I remember a friend going off Facebook, and I was literally just asking questions. I'm like, how did you do it? How can I you? Have- I know. Wait, this is possible? Right. And now I just get sick if I go back on there. Uh, I know. I agree. And, you know, unfortunately, for businesses like you and I, or that we run, you know, it's important to have your name out there and have your, you know, your, your thoughts for, as a thought leader. It is. That's, I, I would like to find that balance. I mean, I, I think, you know, a, a friend of mine, Michael Margolis of, of uh, Storied, he, he showed me this whole idea of, it, it, in a way, it's the Hindu gods, Vishnu, Shiva, et cetera, of, of create, maintain, and destroy. Mm. And, the word consume means to use up and destroy. And so these things have to be in balance. And I found that if I'm getting really consumption, destroying, meaning I'm just consuming a lot of media, et cetera, and not balancing that with creating or maintaining my life, my body, et cetera, then I get out of whack. And so that I would, I I do consider potentially using social media more for creation if I can Mm -hmm. find that balance. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't, do much consuming, but mostly creating. I, the one paradigm shift I've had a lot lately that I think relates to the businesses we're in is that, you know, I was, I was a, a climbing buddy of mine for a long time is this guy, Jimmy Chin, who's done pretty well. Oh, amazing. Yeah, guy. Yeah. 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 And so Jimmy, you know, and I go way back climbing and skiing all over the world. And so one of the things I've watched and then we owned a company together that, that was amazing. I mean, essentially Inkwell took Jimmy, um, Chris Burkhart, Travis Rice, and another guy who all had 25,000 followers. So 100,000 followers total, four guys. And because they started using network effects and started managing, not having Jimmy post every day, but managing the posts on a, on a calendar much more professionally, they grew that business from four and 100,000 followers to 475 million followers in six years. Wow. It was a network effect, right? Now when Jimmy posts something, when they post something for Jimmy, it goes to 400 followers and 75 million people, right? So that the impact is massive. Mm-hmm. And, and what I'm finding is, and what, what my goal is, is to start being able to create content without me be able to 
being thinking consciously about creating that content. Mm. So, so thinking about like doing a podcast like this or doing a podcast on my own or just going to tell a story, but always having somebody else there to capture that. I think, I think if you look at the real success, Gary v does that. Yeah, exactly. Gary V does it. I think Scott Galloway does it. Oh, you know, he's so good. Yeah. They're really good. Right. And they're, re they're really good because they can be their authentic self. So I think there's a difference between being the, the kind of idea generator, you know, we could use the word thought leader and then trying to be the, the broadcaster of those thoughts. Right. It's hard to try to do both. Right. Mm -hmm, it's hard mm -hmm. to kind of record yourself and say, Oh, I didn't like the way I smiled. I mean, if you're just, somebody's just following you around and, and recording you for a while, you don't, you don't start to care anymore. Right. It's just like, right. I mean, it's like what you talked about, you know, my speaking career, it's like, you just got to get in, on stage a thousand times and then you'll, it'll be easy. You'll remember <laughs> everything. Right. That's part of part. It's just experience. And I think that's the content creation thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I found with speaking specifically is the, the big uh, force multiplier, what have you is, watching it over again and right. cringing when yeah. I see I did my last speech. I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm not grounded. My body was off, right? And it's painful to watch. So, you know, people say it's about the 10,000 hours, but I think it's more about the feedback cycles because that's how you can course correct. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. I think that's right. So we've got a, a show, like culture hackers, people like to hack. So right. let's get into a, a few specifics. Um, you You know, this whole world of crowdsourcing work. So yeah. um, what are some of the, what, like if people want to try experimenting with this, what are, what are a few things that people, especially if, if they are not used to this and want to test it out, like where they're, they wouldn't be betting the farm on this. Do you have example, either projects or sites or th things that they can do to start experimenting with this? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is, is don't think about hiring a person, think about what tasks need to be done mm -hmm. and then, and then going out to, to, you know, digital resources to do that, you know, so I, which I, ones come to mind of, of, I mean, I, place. you know, I, I would say just on a graphic design and, and lower, lighter level, you know, um, tech stuff is Upwork and Freelancer and Fiverr. And then there are all these other ones that are much more heavy lift, you know, build, build things like Torque and TopTal and, and Brain Trust. But my sense is if you want to really light lift, like, so one of the things that, you know, I was really intrigued with when, when the Ukrainian war started was, man, I wanted to support somebody, right? I, I felt really an obligation to do that. And I was looking around, I was like, wow, I got to have a, you know, I was given a speech for Wharton and I was like, I need this new graphic. I just went on Upwork and put up, posted like my thoughts on a, on a, what I needed. And this woman in Ukraine, you know, first time mm. job, 15 bucks an hour, five hours of work. She did it for me. Now, the crazy thing is, is you think about the, the, what's happened in Ukraine, half a million Ukrainians were freelancers before the war. Now a lot, most still are because it's very portable work. The average freelancer in Ukraine makes $25,000 a year. Now that might not seem a lot here, but the, you know what the average salary in Ukraine is? Mm -mm. Guess. 40,000. <laughs> $3,500 a year. What? Yeah. And so you think about that, you know, here's this, here's a 22 year old girl that works for five hours on my, on my thing and makes 75 bucks. That's a lot of money if you're wow. making $3,500 a year. So you've got a whole crew, a whole bunch of millennials that are digitally connected, that know the tools that are making yeah. $25,000 a year. They're making eight times what their parents make. Do you, do you think it was, cause I remember 
when I saw the shift happen was was with those sites like 99designs, where mm-hmm. the whole thing used to be that you would get uh, your RFPs and, right. and graphic designer would have to write out a whole proposal. And then they right. realized, wait a minute, graphic designers like creating graphic designs. They right. would rather spend an hour creating a design than an hour working on a proposal for you exactly. to do it. Exactly. And so it was a no-brainer for everyone. Is it was that the turning point or were there was there another turning um, I point? I think I think there's been a bunch, but I, I mean I think one of the things when you talk about 99 designs, super interesting. You know, they got bought by Vistaprint, but one of the things they did along the way is I love this idea of embedding talent and software. And so what I mean by that is they did a deal with Squarespace. So you go to Squarespace to set up your own website and you're struggling like, oh, I don't know how to make this work. There's a button right there. Need help? Click. You know, somebody can come on the screen and say, hey, Robert, happy to help you. Now you pay an hourly rate, but it's pre-vetted 99design graphic designer or UX expert or whatever. I mean, you're seeing this in a much bigger way. Intuit, you know, now has their ask an expert in in their kind of, you know, the the tax uh, QuickBooks tax stuff where those are a bunch of bookkeepers that used to compete with QuickBooks. But now Intuit has created this ecosystem around QuickBooks. So you can click if you're having problems Mm. figuring out your taxes and talk to a certified CPA. And I think that's the way it should be is like talent should be embedded in the things we're doing. And we should be able to take our effort as far as we think we need to, somebody might say, Hey, just give me a, the CPA, but you know, you're a 24 year old millennial. You're like, I can't afford that, but I can afford like doing 90% of it and calling the CPA through the software to say, could you just look at this to make sure I got it right? Wow. And I think that's the future, right? That's the future of work. It's, it's task first, talent second. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, John, if, if people want to learn more about you, your book or getting involved in any way, what, uh, what should yeah, they just do? Just go to John, johnwindsor.com or openassembly.com. Um, both sites that you can go to. It's actually open hyphen assembly about our work, work at Harvard and, and uh, my upcoming book on open talent that's coming out next year from Harvard. So a lot of, a lot of stuff we're trying to figure out. Fantastic. Any, any, any things you want to throw out there that you're figuring out? Somebody might hear this podcast and say, Hey, John, I think I'll figure that out. I mean, a daily mantra for me is stay scared, right? I I try to do something every day to to scare the shit out of myself. Really? What are some of the things you've done recently? Yeah. Well, I mean, I solo, I do a lot of solo rock climbing, not really hard solo rock climbing, but enough to say, if I fall, I die. Right. And, and, uh, you know, and I like to descend really quick on my, on my bikes and things like that, Mm. you know, or or surf waves, but I always try to put myself in a situation where it's not like, you know, Hey, I'm going to ride my bike downtown Boulder and close my eyes when I go through an intersection, wondering if it's a red or green light, like that would be (laughs) stupid. Right. But I think there's ways that we can challenge ourselves intellectually, physically, emotionally, spiritually. I I'm, I'm really fascinated by this area of, you know, of psychedelics and, and how they might facilitate change. I don't know if you've watched or read, you know, um, Michael Pollan's work. Michael Pollan's yeah. work, right? Or the new mm-hmm. Netflix series that he has, you know, how to change your mind. And I'm I'm really fascinated by all those kinds of things. Can you can you do something that terrifies you? I'm it probably, right? Probably those things that terrify us the most are those things that are just waiting to be explored and you're gonna learn the most from. Mm, well said. Well said. John Windsor, everybody. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Robert. All right, culture hackers. See you next time.